You are listening to the Future of Asia podcast by McKinsey & Company. I am Oliver Tonby, your host and chairman of McKinsey Asia. In this series, we feature leaders from across the region to discuss the forces, the opportunities, and the challenges that are shaping the future of Asia. Welcome, welcome everyone to the Future of Asia podcast series. Today's discussion is the year that was and looking into 2021 and what's going to come. I am joined today by three distinguished guests. I am joined by Anu Madgavkar. She is a partner in uh, India uh, and she leads the McKinsey Global Institute in India. I am joined by Jonathan uh, Wetzel. Dr. Wetzel is one of the global leaders of McKinsey Global Institute. Uh, he is based in China. And finally, I am joined by Angus Dawson. He is McKinsey's managing partner in Australia and New Zealand. Welcome to all three of you. Now, let us start this by just a quick look back on, on 2020. And we've heard the word unprecedented used many times about 2020 and what we've just been through. But let me ask you, as you look back, what is the one thing that kind of stands out and, and has surprised you when you look back? Who wants to go first? Perhaps uh, Anu? Sure. I think uh, it's been an extraordinary year and uh, you can say it's a decade's worth of disruption that's been collapsed into eight or nine months. To me, what was surprising is not just the speed with which companies adjusted to this and the scale at which they mobilized and changed their workforces, etc. to adjust, but also actually that they were thinking ahead and they are embracing this opportunity to reinvent and reimagine what the longer term future will look like. So I think that mindset is surprising. Thank you. Angus. So Oliver, I remember early in the year helping a client with an announcement and it was an announcement that was a big departure from common practice. And uh, we played around with the language to put in that announcement and we put in the word unprecedented. And we like to look back and think we were the first to sort of coin the phrase, but I don't think we were. Uh, but for me, the thing of 2020 that really stands out was actually the possibilities that were unlocked. I think it's the response to the pace and the disruption that actually has filled a lot of organizations with a fairly quiet optimism about what can now be achieved over the next 12 months. Dr. Wetzel? I agree with what Angus is saying about that optimism of how quickly we shifted and this pace of innovation. So. I mean, if I, to take that, I mean, the vaccines. I mean, I think that the rate of innovation that we've seen in the face of unprecedented uh, requirements has been an unprecedented response, that the, the pace and the quality of that innovation has been much greater than people had expected and uh, certainly beat early estimates, but, but also beat and by a long ways beat historical precedent in terms of how quickly and how well we innovated to now hopefully come up with something that will ultimately bring the last year of experience uh, to an end. Thank you. As I said, there was a lot of unprecedented in that last year <laughs> look back. Listen, I want to quickly turn to start talking about 2021. And we've done a little bit of, of research over the past year as a firm We've talked to many CEOs, and I think there are a few themes that are kind of coming out. Let me put five in front of you, and then we'll take we'll tackle each one in turn. The first one is 
we're seeing a widening distance between high performers and underachievers. Secondly, we're seeing the rapid acceleration and the imperative of digitalization and data analytics. We're also seeing that many companies thinking about bolder actions, bolder moves when it comes to their portfolio, their portfolio of investments or portfolio of M&A. Number four, we're seeing the whether it's the, the growth of or the, the resurgence of ESG, environmental, social, and governance impact. And, and finally, the deepening integration across Asia. These are five topics that we're kind of seeing. So we'd love to kind of double click on each one of these in, in turn. So let's start with the first one, which is this widening gap between the high performers and the underachievers, if we're allowed to call them that. Now, let me start with you, Jonathan. Our research suggests that the gap between high and low performance has been growing during that, the pandemic. Why do you think that is? Well, I think in a nutshell that some companies proved able to uh, respond to and to shift their operating model in the face of this new competitive context, and some did not. And so we've uh, we've continued to see uh, that's in many uh, Asian contexts, that is in some ways a continuation of a trend. And that uh, as we looked at the top companies and the top quintile of performers in Asia relative to other regions, it's simply put much harder to stay at the top in Asia. There's a lot more churn. Uh, And so companies are there for shorter periods, reflecting their resilience and their capacity to adapt. And I think that during we saw that evidenced really remarkably during uh, the last 12 months where companies moved online. But more, they didn't just move their customer interface, they moved their entire asset portfolio and supply chain, as well as they figured out how to move their uh, employees and not just their employees, but their their partners in the supply chain online, all of which uh, was unique in uh, history. And uh, of course, the ones that were able to do that picked up a lot of share. As we look at all marketplaces, whether it's retail or logistics or for that matter, uh, you know, services and education and healthcare platforms and companies that were able to mobilize, uh, they picked up a lot of share and they started and, and then they, they used that share. They start to consolidate. Yeah, I would just add to that. I think we look at um, any crisis in history and it tends to sort of favor the strong and accelerate the demise of the weak. And I think that this is no different from that. I think the, the one really interesting thing about the nature of the response to COVID was that it happened to take the most disruptive trend in business and society, which was the migration away from physical to digital. And it just happened that it massively accelerated that. And so not only have we had the normal kind of accelerated Darwinism of of a crisis, but we've had the, the massive acceleration of the most disruptive trend, which is why what we see happening is this great acceleration of the superior business models, the more digital business models, outpacing even faster those that are slower to act. For many companies, of course, this is actually, you know, in some ways it's good news because a lot of companies fail because they fail to move fast enough because they don't see the writing on the wall of playing through the way the trends are really going to um, impact them. Whereas now you've got a lot of organizations who can see the future much faster and actually have time and space to act and the urgency is now very clear. Let me stay on this topic of kind of this widening difference between the low and the high performers. Is that something that we see? We see it within a sector. That's what you've been talking about now. Do we also see it uh, across sectors? Well, I think that 
digital does not respect traditional definitions of industry boundaries. You know, we, we talk about platform businesses, we talk about ecosystems, etc. So the acceleration of digital has also accelerated the blurring of, of industry boundaries. So I would say we're seeing it both within any traditional sector definition. Uh, we can see that in the, in the numbers in terms of the market valuations of various players. We see some sectors becoming more attractive than others, which has both digital effects as well as macroeconomic effects, obviously, with industries like travel and hospitality and things like that that mean much, much more damaged banks, uh, energy companies, etc. But we also do see it in the, in the, the rapid growth of the, the digital giants who have no respect for traditional industry boundaries and the impact of that in eroding or transforming the, the way money is made in more traditional industries. Got it. Thank you. Anu, go ahead. I think what's interesting uh, to me also is that when you think about these outperformer companies that are pulling ahead of the pack, it's not that they've suddenly woken up and discovered these capacities overnight. Uh, the reason that they were outperformers to begin with is because they were inherently better and have built up this capacity over the years to really innovate, adjust, adapt, and be flexible. And as we've seen examples of companies that have embraced some of these big, bold moves during the pandemic, just for example, if you think about India's largest IT services company, overnight moved almost half a million employees to virtual working. But that wasn't it. It's basically got a plan now put in place to make sure that even in 2025, their aspiration is to have as much as 75% of their global workforce you know, working in remote or hybrid models. So the ability to adjust very rapidly, but then to also adapt your uh, core operating model for the longer term. And a similar example out of Korea, where the top beauty uh, group, which is also a top 10 group now globally coming out of Korea, did so, has reached that position on the back of intense product innovation. And then during the pandemic, really doubled down on that skill to come out with virtual adjusted or virtual friendly models of uh, trying out beauty products like uh, augmented reality and so on. So it's tapping into skills that you've actually acquired, a DNA you've acquired over the years to be an outperformer in the first place. It's actually allowing these companies to forge ahead now. Thank you, Anu. And I think you've all already started talking about the second topic here, which is unlocking the full potential of digital. Let me go to, uh, to Jonathan with the next question. When you look at the business landscape, what are some of the businesses, some of the industries where you've seen some of the most impressive adaptations to of new digital solutions across Asia? Jonathan. I think we kind of started on this journey a, a little while ago. Um, Angus mentioned that this is the radical power of the, tra- of the transformation of physical into digital we like to call it the, the three Ds, uh, disintermediation, disaggregation, and dematerialization. So that these the digital is essentially doing a better job of matching supply and demand, uh, getting rid of the middleman, and of creating a whole new category of value, of value in most industries. Uh, that's, and the players that can capture those sources of value are definitely gaining in share. We see it in all value chains over time. So we think probably in a country, for example, that's relatively advanced in this, such as China, you know, up to 30 to 40% of all 
revenues across industries will be disrupted over the next 10 years, which is which is an amazing number, saying that you know, you're going to see this dramatic shift of revenues, and that means they're up for grabs. Uh, the, the offline incumbents may or may not be the ones who get that new online source of revenue. And uh, so that, that creates a whole lot of competition and intensity. The, I mean, I could point out everything from healthcare and the rise of telehealth to the logistics sector, where we continue to see sort of a movement towards the 3PLs and the online management platforms to capture more value to the obviously to uh, education and retail, but also as importantly to manufacturing. If we look at the value within a car of what's actually people paying for, an increasing share of that is the online streaming services. And uh, essentially your car is your your largest entertainment device and and, uh, you're willing to pay for that entertainment quite a lot, actually, uh, relatively speaking, let alone its function as an energy storage device if you have an electric vehicle and so forth. So these applications reach across industries they imply a new set of skills for, uh, particularly for uh, people who viewed themselves as being asset producers. They're, that that model is increasingly challenged. Uh, instead, people are having to figure out how they're going to make money off of operating and management, managing an ongoing stream of largely digital earnings. Thank you. Same question to you, Angus. What are some of the the businesses, the industries where you see some of the more interesting, forward-looking digital adaptations? I think one of the most interesting things that happened is if you if you think of the, the general adoption curve for any new technology or, or any industry, you, you've always got that bit at the end of the curve, which is the, the laggards or the, the late adopters. And in many industries, financial services, re- retail, things like that, they tend to be sort of older, more established customers who are just not willing to, to move. And what happened through the pandemic was that those customer groups in particular had to find a way to come online because they were in many ways the most vulnerable. And so what we saw was that the most intractable problems for shifting people from physical to digital, especially for incumbent players, suddenly had a solution to them. And that, I think, is quite transformative for how businesses can think about their infrastructure and what they've got out there. The other thing is regulation, which would have taken decades to potentially change because of all the entrenched interest groups, such as whether or not you would get reimbursed by government health systems for telehealth consultations, also were just forced to change. So I think it's less in some ways the the innovativeness of the solutions, but actually the removal of some of the most intractable barriers to us sort of fast forwarding to much more of that kind of natural digitized uh, sort of you know, target state for any industry. Thank you. And Anu, we've also been looking at some of the opportunities that arise from the ongoing technology revolution across Asia. Would you care to, what are some of those uh, opportunities that you see going forward? Well, I think it's really about the impact of digital adoption on virtually every aspect of, of the economy. So it's really broadening out from thinking about let's say, a set of sectors that are particularly early adopters or, uh, you know, high-tech friendly sectors, but really thinking about how broader ecosystems, as we mentioned earlier, are being disrupted. And I think what's really interesting looking forward to 2021 is, again, the track record and, in a way, commitment of governments in Asia to really embrace this agenda of digitizing the whole economy, essentially, and, and allowing and enabling that disruption to take place. I think India is a good example there where 
on the back of the digital ID platform, which is now covering 1.3 billion people, there are a set of public digital platforms being built, which will actually enable a huge amount of private sector innovation through open APIs and so forth. And this is going to spur these super apps or horizontal sort of application ecosystems to go into sectors even as basic as agriculture or logistics, uh, certainly healthcare and education, which earlier we would not have thought about as necessarily the digital first sectors, right? So that combination of government policy investments and removing some of those intractable barriers that Angus talked about uh, are really going to open up opportunities for a lot of incumbents in a lot of these traditional sectors as well. Thank you. Let's shift to the third topic, which was the notion that companies need to and are making bolder moves across their portfolio, whether that is how they allocate their investments, whether it is in M&A and divestments, or frankly, even in their portfolio of uh, their customer portfolio. Angus, how do you think about this going into 2021? What do you see when you talk to your clients about portfolio moves? Yeah, I think any period of, of major change has this initially, I think people freeze and then they unfreeze. And, and what I've seen in a lot of my clients is that they, they've kind of unfrozen a lot of established beliefs and viewpoints they might have had about which businesses they should be in or what the prospects for those businesses are. And the more they're looking at some of these sort of fundamental trends and where value is going to move, the more they're realizing they need to make sure they're in spaces they can really win and not wasting time, effort, energy and resources in spaces that they can't. Uh, and so what I'm seeing is actually much more of a return to what I would call classic strategy, which is not kind of taking the core business for granted and asking kind of what else should we do outside our core, but more asking the question is, well, what is our core business in the future? What will it be? How will we make money out of it? And what do we need to do to position for that? And a natural consequence of that is asking, well, should we be in some of these other businesses and should we be acquiring new capabilities as we think about the way the future is unfolding? Uh, so I actually think the next uh, sort of 12 to 24 months is going to be an incredibly interesting period of industries effectively realigning and corporate structures realigning. I think for some markets which still have more of sort of conglomerate-style industries, we, what we could see is the you know, what we think is inevitably going to happen, which is an acceleration towards more traditional industry structures rather than these all these cross-holdings happening across different industries. And let me stay with you, Angus. And what are some of the things that historically or typically get in the way of this acceleration? Yeah, so the main thing that gets in the way is human and social factors of people not wanting to act because either their legacy decisions it's seen for many conglomerates, it's seen often as a failure to decide to exit a business, like you only ever buy new businesses or invest in new things. And so what starts to happen is when one or two organizations move, and whether they move because they're being bold or whether they move because they're under pressure from for either from um, debt holders or sometimes activist investors, then that can start a bit of a, a landslide where more and more then start to change. So I think it's we're seeing inertia being removed, and I think we're likely to see some kind of early movers start to change a little bit of the expectation as to what it means to, uh, to, to build a successful business.
Asia's standing in the world has changed, and it's clear that where the focus once was on how quickly the region would rise, the reality is now all about how Asia will lead. Keep listening to the Future of Asia podcast. Got it. Thank you. Let's shift to topic number four, which is reigniting ESG, uh, environment, social, and governance. And this is something that we see that customers expected, employees expected, investors are looking forward. Let me start with you, Jonathan. The climate crisis is, it's real, it's frightening. Asian societies are becoming increasingly vulnerable. What are some of the examples that you see that companies and industries are, are doing when it comes to ESG? I think that this, the debate, if you will, or the, is the debate may be over on this in the sense that we're now into the execution phase, in the sense that people have started to get the picture around the, essentially the, the, the relationship between the changing physical environment and the economic impacts of that change on our companies and our communities. So with that recognition, so we see a lot of changes in, the, first of all, the industries that are there to essentially measure and manage that risk, which would largely be the financial sector. So that's, that's the purpose, if you will, of the intermediation. And so we see lots of data providers, lots of evaluation processes, vendors, people within, of course, their own financial sectors, starting to include that environmental element, as well as the social elements into their decision making. And I think that's probably the most fundamental change, because as those decisions are made about who gets the loan at what price or, you know, what type of valuation is put on one type of company, that then really moves a value chain. And we see value, we see, of course, change in value. If we look at, uh, again, the automotive sector is a, is a good bellwether. Um, the third quarter has, has marked a huge boom in electric vehicles. It's just uh, taken over uh, from ICE if you look at China now. And it's not just Tesla, it's Tesla plus four. So of all the, the, the four Chinese EV companies. And that, you know, it's just saying it's really broad based. And uh, we're starting to see that implications of a revaluation of capital when you incorporate this environmental social externality, having meaningful impacts on leadership and growth opportunities for all players within a sector where where it starts to hit. And not every sector is the same, of course. Some are more affected than others by different things. But I think now that there's a recognition that we can't just sort of take our existing metrics for granted, that they're all going to change. I understand. Anu, let, let me turn to you. You've done research and you, know, you looked at climate change across uh, Asia and frontier Asia, uh, most of South Asia. We're going to see in extreme increases in heat and humidity and precipitation and, and other types of events. Do you see businesses, governments in these countries, does this register? Are they taking action? So you're right, Oliver. I think Asia-wide, our estimates are, are that about a billion people could actually be living in regions which, for example, have a non-trivial probability of lethal heat events, right, that make it uh, impossible to work. And that's obviously a big risk both to human life as well as GDP. I think we are, though the time scales at one level are challenging because the investments and, of course, the risks and returns pan out over a longer time frame than many governments or businesses really think about. 
But what is encouraging is that we do see that sort of longer term thinking panning out. And I think uh, we see examples across many Asia, Asian countries. India, I think, became one of the first countries in the world to actually have a cooling action plan uh, that's at least been articulated and laid out uh, last year in terms of uh, you know what to do in the event of extreme heat uh, events. Uh, several cities in the country also have their equivalent you know city action plans. I think in Malaysia, there's actually been a big focus on flooding as a big climate event. And KL, for example, has a plan to build some 3 million cubic feet of water storage and channeling capacity to protect the city against flooding events. So that sort of thinking, and if you overlay on that the fact that the renewable agenda has really been embraced by many economies in Asia, led by China and India as well, I think this is sort of encouraging for the whole uh, climate agenda. Thank you. I'm going to shift to topic number five, which is the deepening integration across Asia, the increased regionalization that we have uh, have been seeing. Starting with you, uh, Jonathan, the RCEP has given a bit of a renewed vigor to most of Asia from a trade perspective. Now, do you see big opportunities coming out from this? And how do you see China's role changing in the region? Well, RCEP is, is a marker, no question about it. Uh, 30% of the world's GDP, I think, is included. And uh, there are still some big pieces of Asia which are not. So there's there's room to grow, notably with India. But as is, you know, it's a step forward for largely, a tra- I wouldn't say an old world, but let's just say current state you know, economic agreement sort of, sort of harmonizes a lot of physical tariffs. It leaves open sort of broader questions around digital harmonization and integration, which will, which therefore will not be an integrated Asia at this stage. But make no mistake about it, Asia is almost as integrated as Europe today, which is saying something, which is essentially the intra-regional trade is about as high as it is in Europe. And, you know, Asia did not go through, have to go through two world wars and a few multilateral institutions to get there. So there is, if you will, a, a you know, pretty bright future for that uh, Asian integration. And because Asia is just so big, as we've been saying, that you know, it's the central world's largest regional economy in terms of market, in terms of investment, recently in terms of technology, then that has real implications for everywhere else. Uh, so I think that the, you know, this how to be playing in Asia, how to be part of Asia, no matter where you are in the world, that's going to be a theme for companies and for that matter for countries around the world. Thank you, uh, Jonathan. Let me turn to Angus. As you you talk to many CEOs, Angus, how are they thinking about this increasing regionalization and the shifting supply chains? So the, the main thing they're thinking about, Oliver, is what does it mean for having a resilient supply chain looking forward? And the focus on supply chains for many years has been much more about efficiency and getting you know, low-cost sourcing, low inventory, you know, rapid flow through supply chains, etc. I think now we're in a different period where we're looking at, well, what is the supply chain that can withstand the various shocks out there? And I think the, the shift in trade relationships between different parts of the world is a really important part of it. And this development in Asia is certainly, if I think of Australian companies, for example, is one that was greeted with a lot of optimism to see real opportunity to engage even more deeply in the region. And I think for the rest of the world looking at Asia, it helps to create a significant part of the world's GDP 
that they can look at and think about in a more accessible way. Perfect. Anu, anything to add on this topic of regionalization? Well, I think Asia's regional integration is a is an issue and an opportunity that you would ignore at your own peril. Led by China, I think Asia's moved from the producer for the world to sort of the consumer and demand generator for the world as well. And therefore, just from its weight in sort of global demand and uh, economic value, this is a huge opportunity. Now, I do think, though, that even within Asia, as Jonathan mentioned, uh, India, for example, has stayed out of RCEP. And this, in my view, is, is should be at least a sort of interim measure while it focuses on, on getting some of its elements in place in terms of bridging a cost gap or competitiveness gap in key value chains. That's a process underway. And I think that we see at least a huge opportunity coming out of 10 to 11 value chains uh, spanning, you know, auto, auto components, EV, battery, chemicals, and then, of course, electronics, textiles, and so forth. Work needs to be done because the end game has to be to really capitalize on uh, much of the integration that's actually going on and will accelerate in Asia. Thank you. Listen, I'm going to start to round us uh, us out in this podcast. But I think what we've talked about, just to a recap, we've talked about five things. Number one, the continuing widening gap between the outperformers and the underachievers. We've talked about the acceleration of digitalization. We've talked about companies making bolder investment choices, capital reallocation, portfolio moves. Uh, We've talked about ESG coming even more to the front, and we've talked about the deepening integration across Asia. Against that context, and I'm going to ask each one of you this question, what is it CEOs should be thinking about? What advice would you have for them for 2021? Jonathan. I think, first of all, 21 is probably not the right target. I think 22. (laughs) I think we should be prepared for another 12 months of rebuilding, uncertainty, general confusion about where we are in terms of particularly global trends. Asia may be a little bit ahead of most most parts of the world, but there's still a lot of uncertainty out there. We should aim at 22, essentially, as being the year where we can really benchmark against where we were. So that's uh, back, say, let's pre-pandemic. So, But the next 12 months, therefore, are an opportunity to invest for that exit uh, in 22. And, and it's the things that we do now, of course, that will make that difference then. And I would stress that this is, in a way, you know, at a very high level, and I'm careful about saying this, but this was predictable, that when we look at what, what we had in the 90s and the 2000s in the sense of stability, that in retrospect, was the illusion that uh, the chaos and the the uncertainty that we're experiencing now, that's actually a lot closer to historical patterns of volatility than what we had over the last 15 or 20 years. So my advice to CEOs and the concerns I think they have is like how to build resilience in the face of what is clearly a more chaotic and uncertain environment than we had imagined. We have spoken a lot about the pandemic, but there are plenty of other shocks out there, uh, notably uh, trade and technology interruptions. We haven't had much on the way of terrorism and geopolitical conflicts. Uh, we had we mentioned climate, but there are there are a wide range of uncertainties that could hit us. And I think that's where CEOs are saying, okay, so in that context, what is an appropriate resilience model? How do I know that I'm actually both still growing 
and protected against this increasing level, not only of hazard, but of exposure and ultimately of vulnerability, the product of which is risk. So measuring and managing that risk, I think, is the key for most companies going for the next 12, but also, as I said, for the 24, 36, in fact, for as far as the eye can go. Same question to you, Anu. What advice do you have for CEOs? I think the one opportunity that CEOs should really double down on in the next year and going forward that cuts across all the ones we've talked about is the talent and leadership harnessing opportunity. I think in many ways, 2020 has been a leadership moment for better or worse for companies as well as governments. Uh, And what it underscores is in a way what we knew all along, which is that human talent is actually the dominant part of of the wealth of a country or, or the wealth of the world for that matter. And how you really harness that, whether it's at the level of the reskilling and transitions that your employee base or workforce require, or whether it's really in terms of making the right bets in terms of leadership capacity and where you really allocate entrepreneurs within your corporation who are going to make some of these big, bold moves. This really matters. And just getting a lot tighter about tapping into that potential is going to be a critical part of who wins and who doesn't in 2022, as Jonathan said. Same question to you, Angus. Yeah, thanks, Oliver. I might make a distinction here between uncertainty and disruption. Uh, I think what we've seen in 2020 is both. But I think the disruption in many ways is less uncertain now. And so I think the main advice to CEOs is understand that there's still uncertainty in the way the pandemic plays out. There's obviously still economic uncertainty. There's health uncertainty. But actually, the fundamental forces shaping many of the industries in which CEOs are operating in, they're clearer now. They're just faster and they're potentially more disruptive and more profound. So I'm not one for waiting for 2022. I'm one for actually starting boldly in 2021 and really thinking about what is the industry you're in and who are your competitors and how are you going to win and how do you make bold moves as fast as possible in 2021 to position for the future. So thank you, Angus. Thank you, Anu. Thank you, Jonathan. Let me try to summarize what I've heard you saying in slightly different words. I've heard you saying that CEOs, senior executives, they need to, number one, build resilience, that resilience in supply chains, that resilience in their investment processes, in their portfolio management. I have heard you saying the need to collaborate, collaborate to capture different types of opportunities, blurring value chains, blurring borders between different uh, sectors. And finally, and I think you've all stressed this, the importance of acting with speed in uh, whatever we are doing. So those to me were the at least three of the takeaways I have. But let me just end by saying a huge thank you to the three of you and saying thank you to all of our listeners. Have a continued great day. Take care, everyone. You have been listening to the Future of Asia podcast by McKinsey & Company. To learn more about McKinsey, our people, our latest thinking, visit us at mckinsey.com slash futureofasia or find us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook.